Being a native and someone who grew up in this city, I think residency is very important to the police department. This is Life of the Law. I'm Nancy Mullane. A little over a year ago, a reporter named Andrew Stelzer sent us a pitch for a story. It was whether the law should require police officers to live where they work. Andrew, where'd you get the idea for that? Well, I cover city of Oakland, uh, city politics. I also cover a lot of grassroots activism. And uh, there's long been tension between the police and the community, especially uh, communities of color and the black community here. And one of the things you often hear in the street protest is we need cops who are connected to the community. We need cops who are from Oakland, not uh, cops that drive in from the suburb, patrol our neighborhoods, and then leave at night. And, and you even hear that from the politicians and people running for a political office. We need more cops who from Oakland. Uh, So I started looking into, well, why aren't there more cops that are from Oakland? And one of the things I found that is that some cities do require their police officers to live in the city they patrol. But in California, there's a state law banning those requirements. And that's in part due to lobbying by law enforcement over the years who don't want to be told where they can and can't live. So I wanted to find out do these laws work? Uh, if they do work, why does California ban it? And uh, you know, for the conversation that's taking place right now all over the country about how to improve policing, what role could residency requirements play? When you started this story, did did you think you had like kind of a secret answer to what would be the best balance of police living in a community versus police commuting in? Well, I think like most people, uh, upon first hearing about this issue, it seemed to just make sense to me that a police officer who lives in the community that they work in will be more connected to the people. They'll know the people through their everyday walking around, going to the store, uh, seeing people on the block. And so the people will respect them more. They'll understand the people more. And so there'll be uh, sort of less of that tension that often exists between police and and community members. So um, my uh, assumption was that cops living in the community sounds like a really good thing. And is that what you found? Uh, What I found is is, is it wasn't that simple. Wait, 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 wait. We don't want to tell what you found because we're going to go to your story right now. Here's Andrew Stelzer's report on residency requirements and police in the communities. Cruising the streets of Deep East Oakland, Officer Charles Stone seems to know just about everyone he sees. Bob Smurf! Hey, how we doing? Where you been at? Yo, where you been? The school had to close down Friday, right? Say what? They closed school down Friday. Friday and Monday. Ain't nobody told me a damn thing. Where were you hiding at? I was at home with Mama. Well, this here is uh, 82nd and MacArthur was right there. So we're up on Nay Street, which is uh, 
which is where where my school is at, where Parker Elementary is. Um, And I'll tell you this, the reason for my presence at this school is because the neighborhood is so infested with crime. How are you? All right, yourself? Doing well, thank you. I'm the cop for this school. And, you know, multiple people shot, you know, is drive-by shootings uh, more often than we'd care for. You know, major narcotics activity out of these apartments up here. Directly across from our elementary school, where you have drug dealing and drug activity and narcotics activity, you have the potential for violence. Stone works for the Oakland Police Department as a school resource officer. He joined the force 15 years ago. It was a decision made with intent. I am from here, um, from Oakland. Five generations of my family have been born and raised in Oakland. So it's a city that I'm absolutely proud of, and uh, my family still lives here. Stone's well over six feet tall, clean cut. He's wearing his sunglasses on the backside of his head. The neighborhood he's currently assigned to isn't the area he grew up in, but it's still part of his hometown turf. It's kind of nice to be from here because I have a certain amount of pride in, in being a police officer in the city that I'm from and the city that my family is from. Only 9% of Oakland's police officers live in Oakland. That's pretty low, but it's not an anomaly. Around the country, other cities, big and small, face the same challenges. In Miami, 7% of the city's police force live within the city limits. In Minneapolis and Ferguson, Missouri, it's around 6%. How do you do community policing with people who don't live in the community? John Penny is a criminologist at Southern University at New Orleans. But he's not just an academic. He spent 16 years as a juvenile probation and parole officer, a job that took him to virtually every corner of the city he still calls home. Normally, under normal circumstances, you protect the things that you... Uh, uh, you would protect it better if you have to live in it. If you don't, then it may become just a job to you. Uh, if you live outside the city, your loyalty and uh, dedication or commitment might not be as great. Residency requirements, rules that required cops to live in the city they patrolled, were common around the turn of the 20th century. But they weren't originally designed to recruit dedicated cops. Descendant from English law, the requirements were a way for politicians to maintain power by doling out jobs to people living in their districts. In fact, police reformers were against the requirements because of the nepotism and corruption involved. But things turned around during the civil rights era, and residency requirements became a racial and economic issue. Andrew Flowers is the quantitative editor of 538.com, a data-driven news site. That's the site run by election prediction guru Nate Silver. These residency requirement ideas were instituted in the 1970s and the 1960s out of like a, an environment of you know white flight, the middle class leaving to the suburbs. Suddenly, the idea of mostly white police officers patrolling inner-city neighborhoods of color during the day, then escaping to their suburban communities at night, didn't sound so great. And the motivations behind these residency requirement ideas seem sensible, right? You know, you want to keep tax money in the city, you want to improve the resident police relations. 
Local governments in Chicago, Denver, and dozens of other cities have laws requiring their officers to live within city limits. Some of these laws include other emergency responders like firefighters, citing the notion that they need to live close by in case of an emergency. Other requirements like Boston's cover all local government employees. In practically every case, there's been resistance from law enforcement agents who say these residency rules restrict their freedom of movement. In 1976, a Philadelphia firefighter took the issue all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. Despite the fire department's residency requirement, he wanted to move out of town. But he lost the case and lost his job. The court rejected the argument that anyone had a constitutional right to be employed by any particular city. The Fraternal Order of Police, or FOP, has been a consistent opponent of residency requirements. Retired Nashville, Tennessee police commander Bob Nash worked with the local and national FOP. You don't have to live in Nashville. You just don't have to be a policeman here in Nashville is kind of the philosophy of the, of the courts. Um, so um, it's, it's really not uh, an issue that you can take to court uh, and be successful. It's really a political issue. In 1994, Nashville's city council voted to get rid of its residency requirement. Nash said that campaign succeeded by arguing that a larger geographic area equals a larger talent pool to hire officers from. Say in in the case of Nashville, if you lived in a bedroom community like Franklin or Brentwood or Mount Juliet, uh, there's some very, very good candidates there for the job. You know, uh, oftentimes people would get married a wife or a husband might have property already or a home already outside the county, so that means you're going to end up having to move. Uh, so people really wanted the freedom to, to move where they uh, wished uh, and still be employed here. When Hurricane Katrina and the floods that followed ravaged New Orleans, throngs of police and other first responders left the city, and there was a shortage of housing. So the city suspended its residency requirement. In the decades since, there's been difficulty generating a pool of qualified applicants from within the city limits. So in 2014, the requirement was removed altogether. We were, as they say, bleeding blue. Even police reform activists like Yvette Theory didn't fight very hard to keep New Orleans law on the books. I mean, I understand from their perspective that they were just trying to, you know, get more recruits or whatever. But being a native and someone who grew up in this city, I think residency is very important to the police department. Theory says there's already a level of weariness about police in New Orleans. Her mentally ill brother-in-law ended up dead after a 911 call. Her son has been stopped by the police several times for what she says was driving while black. We did a survey back in 2007 where overwhelmingly people said they didn't trust the police. That hasn't changed. People still don't trust the police. And now you're bringing people outside the community and, and putting badges on them. So where, you know, how the trust level going to go up when you, you know, you're allowing outsiders to come in and police other people's community with no investment.
One of the ideas behind residency requirements is that they will help create a police force as diverse as the citizens of the city they patrol. But Andrew Flowers from 538.com looked at the numbers and found out that might not be happening. Going into this study, me and the co-author thought, hey, I assume that this has a positive effect on police diversity. So it was a little surprising uh, that the data didn't back it up. Flowers analyzed the 75 largest police departments in the U.S. to see whether those with residency requirements had a more racially representative police force. Meaning, for example, if your city's population was 40% black and 30% Asian, the police force would mirror those same numbers, 40% black and 30% Asian. So against all conventional wisdom, they found that police departments that required officers to live in the city they patrol actually had less diverse police forces. One of the things we found is diversity does help. It seems like there is a, a correlation between the more diverse a police department is, the better uh, there's a reduction in, in police misconduct, and there's more trust from the community t- towards the police force. Flower's study found that having that diversity on the police force creates a kind of institutional change. The culture changes, right? It becomes less insular. It's open to community feedback, etc. So we, we found lots of researchers who had documented this relationship between diversity and better police community relations. But what we weren't able to find is that research that proved that residency requirements were a way to get that diversity. Like any good statistician, Flowers is careful to distinguish between correlation and causation. He thinks the diversity issues existed before the residency requirements, so the rules didn't cause a lack of diversity, but those requirements also didn't solve the problem or reduce the distrust. That's likely one reason that Black Lives Matter and the growing movement for police reform across the country are not prioritizing residency requirements as part of their call for change. So what can police departments do to get that diverse police force, which is clearly an asset? Flowers, along with everyone else I spoke to for this story, said the real key is recruitment. Okay, good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to OPD's fourth annual open house. It's a sunny spring afternoon, and the Oakland police are hosting their annual open house street fair. Oakland Police Sergeant Mildred Oliver is at a table promoting the Police Activities League and the Explorers program. Both are efforts to expose children to police officers and what they do, in hopes that one day some of those homegrown kids might want to join the force. We are really truly trying to recruit people, uh, an agency that's being run by the people, for the people of Oakland. Oliver has been a cop for 18 years. She's born and raised here and is part of that 9% of the force that lives in the city. I'm not saying that only Oaklanders can understand Oaklanders, but it gives us more credibility as a department when we can say that we go out in the community and recruit and we grow our own. Oakland used to have a residency requirement. But in 1974, California legislators amended the state's constitution, making the geographic restrictions illegal. All of a sudden, cities and counties had to allow officers to live wherever they wanted. Today, some of Oakland's police officers live more than 100 miles away.
I wanted to ask Officer Stone, Oakland born and raised, how he felt about law enforcement commuting in from the suburbs or further patrolling his hometown. Stone is also black and understands the racial dynamics at play. So I was really surprised when he told me that the city of Oakland is no longer where he calls home. I do not live here anymore. Okay. Moved out. I got tired of seeing people that uh, I've arrested at oh, my really? house, in front of my house. Okay. Gets. <clears throat> now that I have a wife, I have three kids. Mm-hmm. It's just I don't want to see those guys. I don't want them. I don't want there to be any trail back to my home where I sleep. Stone's growing family was a major part of the decision. I've been followed home before. It's just, it's a little frightening. And as soon as my wife and I, we were able to to get everything straight as far as finances, we got out. So like more than 90% of his colleagues, Stone moved to the suburbs. No drama, hardly any traffic. You know, it's it's one of those streets where if you don't know where it is, it's kind of hard to drive down it. Um, which is great because there's kids playing outside and everybody's got their kids on bicycles and there's, it's just, it's, it's peaceful, which is good. Raising kids in a safe neighborhood with good schools is cited by many officers as to why they don't want to live in the inner city. Cost of living is also a big deal. In Oakland, the price of housing has risen so much in the last decade, it can be out of reach even for relatively well-paid police. If police officers don't want to live in the city that they're working in, I think we have a very uh, crisis and and, uh, serious situation. Criminologist John Penny says the quality of life justification only exacerbates the divide between police and urban communities. First of all, if you're a police officer, you don't want to live here in the city. And the people that you are supposed to be protecting, then how do you think they feel about you in terms of your attitude towards the city? Would you want to go to a hospital where the doctors and nurses say, I would never use this hospital? We want to be safe as well. So we want them to live here, to share our uh, way of life. But despite calls for more local hiring, there's no real movement to overturn California's state law banning residency requirements. That's just fine with Officer Stone. It's a silly rule to say you must live in Oakland or you must live in San Francisco to be a San Francisco police officer or you must live in Concord to be a Concord police officer. Why? Because if I move outside the city limits, I won't be able to do this job as as effectively as somebody who lives within the city limits. That's crap. If that, if that would have been a stipulation when I was hired, I wouldn't be here. I'd be working for some place that didn't have that rule. And they'd have lost out on a good guy. And that, in a way, is what it comes down to. Would Oakland's police department be better off with Officer Stone or without him? He's black, where does that factor in? Or is it simply important that he's a good man and a good cop? For Life of the Law, I'm Andrew Stelzer in Oakland. And I'm Nancy Mullane. What's it like to be an elected official in a city where police officers aren't expected to live in that same city, 
But it's your responsibility to make sure that the police and the residents of that community have a strong relationship and a trusting relationship. Annie Campbell Washington was elected to the Oakland City Council in November 2014 and took office in January. It has been eight exciting months. <laughs> There's, it's never a dull moment in Oakland. And um, I just love the city of Oakland. I love the people there. And so I feel like this is uh, an amazing opportunity for me to serve people. We just listened to a story by Life of the Law's Andrew Stelzer about residency requirements for police officers to live in the city where they actually practice their job. But in the story, we hear that, you know, Officer Stone has chosen to live outside of the city of Oakland where his children can ride their bike safely. What does that sound like to you? I believe that we need to be searching for the best individuals to serve our city as police officers. And what does that mean? I think that means we need a diverse police force. I think that we need to be uh, racially diverse because Oakland is one of the most diverse cities in the country. So I think we really have to seek that out. We have to be serious about um, recruiting a diverse population. We need to recruit more women. And so that's where we've really put our focus in the last few years in Oakland is how do we recruit additional African-American police officers? How do we recruit additional Latino police officers? How do we recruit additional women? And in the most recent class, um, we had 28% Oakland residents uh, as recruits. We have 25% African-American recruits. So I think it shows that we are putting a real focus on diversity and recruitment and diversity. The reason I think that is so important that you hire a diverse workforce is that I think that it automatically gives you um, a police force that can better understand the diverse neighborhoods that we have in Oakland. If the state of California is saying you cannot require that Oakland police officers live in Oakland, do you think people in Oakland accept that? I think all of us would prefer to have more police officers live in Oakland than outside. I don't think that it predicts a good police officer to know that they're living in Oakland. But I do think that there's a sense of wanting to see police officers in their daily lives. I think that people, uh, because we've had historically strained relations uh, between the community and the, and the police in Oakland, I, I think that one thing that could help that is having police officers actually live in the community and understand the community at that level, because you understand the community a different way if your child is going to the neighborhood school and um, you're you're interacting with your neighbors in the evenings over neighborly things as, as well as, as your work. Would I go as far as to say uh, residency requirements would ensure that we had good police community relations? No. I wouldn't say that. I think so much more goes into strong community police relations beyond where the police officer lives. I wouldn't want to have residency requirements only because I think it would mean that we would lose certain people. I think we would lose certain good individuals who just either couldn't afford to live in Oakland or didn't want to live in Oakland because they want, at the end of the day, to turn off and, and go home. 
What can you as a city council person do to try and bring Stone back? <laughs> well, that's the, the biggest thing for me is making sure that we're building an Oakland where anyone who want, wants to live in Oakland can afford to live in Oakland, that anyone who wants to live in Oakland and is living in Oakland feels safe and feels like they have an excellent school to send their child to. Those are the, those are the whole reasons why I'm doing the work that I'm doing. To go back to Officer Stone... We may not ever be able to bring every single police officer here to live live in Oakland, which is why I don't think a residency requirement is the right thing. I don't think it's the right thing to require because there may be individual reasons, which is what I heard from Officer Stone. There may be individual reasons why um, an officer, a police officer specifically, would not want to live in the city where they're working. But I do think that we want to keep as many police officers, as many public servants working in the city of Oakland, living in the city of Oakland as possible. Um, and, and to do that, we have to make sure they can afford to live there, that they're safe in their neighborhoods, and that they have wonderful schools. It almost, it, it, it sounds like the move forward is to build, take this opportunity of n- an influx of new uh, New funding, new economic opportunity, economic opportunity in Oakland to to create a safer uh, Oakland. At the same time, keeping it diverse, not allowing gentrification to change the face, the 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 Absolutely. core identity of the city. I guess that that must be a real challenge as well. Absolutely, it is because uh, what we're really talking about, I believe, is systemic racism, and to really make a change in in certain neighborhoods is to to state out loud we have failed in certain neighborhoods. We have not delivered services equitably across the city, and those are the types of things that we all have to come together at the city government level to do, and um, it's. It's challenging work, but I think Oakland is the perfect place to lead on this. I think Oakland is the perfect place to say, we have not done this well in the past. We recognize that there are neighbors that are, uh, that neighborhoods that are predominantly black and brown, where services are not delivered, where, where streets are not safe, where schools are not necessarily successful. And, and we must figure out a way to deliver services equitably. Annie Campbell Washington, thank you so much for joining Life of the Law. Thank you so much for having me, Nancy. It's been such a pleasure to be here. This episode of Life of the Law was reported by Andrew Stelzer and edited by Jim Gates. Jonathan Hirsch designed the sound and produced the story with assistance from Kirsten Jesuits Heidel. Howard Gelman of KQD is our engineer. Life of the Law is a nonprofit project of the Tide Center, and we're part of the Infinite Guest Network of podcasts from American Public Media. You can also find Life of the Law on PRX, Public Radio Exchange, and on our website, lifeofthelaw.org. If you'd like to make a much-appreciated donation to help cover the direct cost of producing our stories, you can find a donate button at the top of the website. It just takes a minute. Next week on our sister podcast, Live Law. When you take a home from one of the families in Southie or Charlestown or Dorchester or Roxbury, you're taking the livelihood away from entire families for generations. So um, we decided to do something about it, and it wasn't necessarily legal. That's next week on Live Law. I'm Nancy Mullane. Thanks for listening. Mm
Hi, I'm Amy Choi. And I'm Rebecca Lair. And we are the Mashup Americans. The Mashup Americans. <laughs> uh, think of us as your guide to the hyphen America world we live in. Are you first generation Korean American, married to a Colombian Mexican American, and making beige babies? Us too. Or do you speak three languages and eat Salvadoran pupusas at Shabbat? Is Spanglish your best language? That's me. <laughs> uh, Spanglish is definitely your best language. Yeah, it was kind of a problem in graduate school. <laughs> eh, don't worry about it. We're, we're done with that. So we've got a new show here on the Awesome Infinite Guest Network. You can go search for Mashup Americans in your favorite podcast app and check it out. We've got a great story about the mashup life of Donald Trump. Oh, and I just went to Margaret Cho's house to Netflix and chill. Kind of. <laughs> oh, my God. Vamos. 